Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I am not Pastor Scott Daniels. Uh, I know many of you, most of you, spent the last, I've been here for the last several years as part of this congregation since moving to Idaho with my family. Uh, but for those that don't know me, my name is Caleb. Uh, some of you may know me as uh, I was a resident intern here with the youth group for a few years, a little while back. Thank you, Erica. I've since then been teaching high school at a small school, uh, Greenleaf Friends Academy. I teach the Bible out there, just outside Caldwell. Um, I am now back helping on staff a little bit, uh, fill in in youth group during the interim, helping us imagine what online ministry might look like. Did I forget anything? Oh, and I happen to be Scott's oldest son, uh, so I guess don't hold that against me. And if it feels like I'm channeling Pastor Scott, at any point, it's probably genetics, okay? <laughs> uh, let's enter the Lord's Word together this morning. Uh, this morning we are in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and His powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. Therefore, pick up the full armor of God so that you can stand your ground on the evil day and after you have done everything possible to still stand. So stand with the belt of truth around your waist, justice as your breastplate, and put shoes on your feet so that you are ready to spread the good news of peace. Above all, carry the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's word. Offer prayers and petitions in the Spirit all the time. Stay alert by hanging in there and praying for all believers. As for me... Pray that when I open my mouth, I'll get a message that confidently makes this secret plan of the gospel known. I'm an ambassador in chains for the sake of the gospel. Pray so that the Lord will give me the confidence to say what I have to say. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us this summer, if you've been attending regularly, you'll know that we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. If you haven't, where have you been? We stream online now. There's no reason to be missing church anymore. Um, but if you've been with us this summer, we've been exploring the book of Ephesians, and I want to just kind of remind us where we've been so we can see where we're going. It's a great honor to kind of get to finish this series off uh, and be the last, you know, little bit of uh, thought thinking in Ephesians before we head back to the sanctuary next week. So, if you remember all the way back in those first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians opens with three great chapters where Paul wants to remind us of the story which we are a part, that we're adopted, ransomed by God, that we might partake in the inheritance of Christ to be called God's children. That this relationship that, that Christ allows us to have with God, this breaking of the barriers between us and God, also begins to break down barriers between us and other people. People we may have previously seen as enemies or just weirdos. Uh, suddenly we call brother, sister. We're unified into one body. 
And then chapter 4, after reminding us of these great truths, reminding us of our story in chapters 1 through 3, chapter 4 begins with this great therefore, which sends us off into, okay, now you know the story, so what now? Right? Leading us into what it looks like to live as one body, how we need to take off all our old ways of living as if it were a dirty set of clothing and learn to live with one another in peace and love instead of anger and division. We're reminded in chapter 5 that this lifestyle is a matter of imitation. We're learning on the job as we tune ourselves to the ways of God, seeking to live lives after God's wisdom, that we may be, as Paul says, children of light. Then today in chapter 6, after having mentioned some practical ways in which the self-giving love of Christ might reshape our day-to-day relationships with one another in ways of mutual submission. Paul ends this great letter by imploring the Ephesians to be strengthened by God's powerful strength and to put on God's armor that we might be able to stand firm in the midst of a largely evil age. Now that's awesome, right? Paul's told us our story He's told us what that means for our life. And then here in our passage today, he's rallying us together that we might go forth and actually do it. Um, You know, it's that moment in the war movie where the odds are stacked against them and the general has to rally the troops and say, come on, fight, yeah, right? They can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom, right? Was that too Scott? That was good? Okay. Uh, for my Tolkien nerds, right? A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day! Right? Aragorn, Lord of the Rings. Uh, for my sports fans, right? Coach Taylor, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. It's a rallying cry. Get the people. Paul's rallying us together. Send us out. Do this. Now, there's kind of two running bits that those of us who find ourselves filling in as part of the teaching team uh, feel like we have to include in our sermon. So I just want to get those out of the way up front. Okay, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's kind of two running jokes or running bits that we have. And I think it's largely because, you know, my dad is such a gifted preacher. And so filling in uh, at his pulpit is kind of a daunting task. Um, This is not my first time speaking in quote-unquote big church, but this is my first time doing what we've uh, christened the the college church triathlon. Um, I spoke at first service this morning and then drove to Middleton, spoke in Middleton, and then drove back here and got here just at the end of announcements. So if I seem frantic and my voice is a little hoarse, um, sorry, Uh, hopefully... You know, if things go well, it's because I had a good warm-up. And if things fall apart quickly, well, you probably should have come to first service. (laughs) Um, But there are two running bits that those of us that fill in, uh, you know, tend to start our sermon with. And we joke that my dad is as gifted of a preacher as he is. He's gifted really as a preacher in two really clear areas. He's gifted in two areas. Uh, The first is, of course, connecting any passage in the Bible to Exodus— And the second is planning his vacation around really difficult texts of the Bible. (laughs) Uh, We tend to joke, right? Oh, this is such a hard text. This is so difficult. 
Um, and I will say I planned to start, I had a plan to start my sermon that way, but then I read the first half of uh, Ephesians chapter 6 about, you know, submit. This person should submit to that person, right? Uh, this per- right? All these, ha- these codes, uh, including like slaves submitting to masters. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm, you know, I kind of dodged a bullet there. Um, and then next week, I, I remember hearing that he's uh, preaching on Family Sunday in the New Sanctuary out of Song of Solomon. And so I actually feel really, really lucky uh, to have gotten the, the armor of God uh, this morning. That's not to say that this isn't a difficult text. Um, there are texts that are difficult because they include weird things. They say odd stuff. We don't know what to do with them, so we just kind of skip over them. Um, this text is difficult for a different reason. Um, it's not unfamiliar, but it's so familiar that sometimes, having heard it again and again in Sunday school, VBS, I know I've done probably hundreds of coloring pages in Sunday school, coloring in the armor of God. There's something about a text that's so familiar that we can fail to miss what's really weird about it and how that weirdness might point us to the truth more than the ways we're used to reading it. And so I must admit, as I prepared for this sermon this morning, uh, I was stuck in my old rhythms, uh, my old ways of reading this text that were largely shaped before uh, I could hardly, when I could hardly read it all. Uh, They weren't shaped by Bible study. They weren't shaped by uh, you know, college exegetical work. Uh, it was shaped by sitting in front of the TV as a kid. Um, I grew up uh, several places, a pastor's kid, you know, we travel here and there. Um, but when I was my formative kind of pre-adolescent years, uh, before junior high, uh, we were in Oklahoma and Texas. So I grew up in the Bible Belt, right? And that meant a couple things. Well, it meant a lot, but it meant a kind of, <laughs> Ryan knows, right? Uh, but it meant, it meant several things when it came to hanging out with kids from church. It meant I couldn't tell them I played Pokemon. I couldn't tell them I read the Harry Potter books. Uh, basically, when it came to cultural things, my topics of conversation were limited to whatever the newest VHS and or DVD, eventually DVD, uh, at the local Christian bookstore were. And I must say, I tried my best to get it out of my head as I was preparing for this text. But as a child of the late 90s, early 2000s, there's one VHS as a kid from the Christian bookstore that has shaped my imagination about the armor of God more than any other. And I think the best way to introduce you to it is really just to to show you. So do we have a video? I heard we have a video. A man who had it all. Well, status, success. Still, something was lacking. Miserable, alone, his spirit beaten, Miles Peterson gave up. Then, in his darkest hour, the words of a single book began to change his life. And at last, Miles Peterson felt the burning desire to know God. Inspired by the Word of God and equipped with unyielding faith, 
Miles pledged to fight evil in the name of God. Now, if this is anything like first service, for some of you, I just sense a flood of memories coming back to you that you've been repressing from childhood. Um, others of you have no idea what this young guy just threw up on the screen, and that's okay. Um, for those unfamiliar, I mean, you've gotten a taste now, but Bible Man was a straight-to-VHS TV series for Christian kids in that aired from 1995 to about 2010, which is way later than I thought. <laughs> uh, apparently, actually, it's been picked back up, and since 2016 has been airing as an animated series. They have, like, a new animated series. I haven't checked that out. Uh, but as you saw, uh, Bible Man stars Miles Peterson, a.k.a. Bible Man, right? A man who had it all. Wealth. Success. Right? Um, who felt everything fell apart and then you felt the, you know, very Wesleyan, strange warming sensation and then, you know, <laughs> goes and puts on a suit and fights crime. Uh, and a Bible Man episode basically goes like this. Um, Bible Man shows up to church. There's a problem at church. Usually, uh, you know, the kids singing group that's supposed to go on at Sunday night revival uh, is having a problem. There's some fighting going on. Bible Man shows up at church in full costume uh, comes, asks the kids what's wrong, tries to get a sense, and as he uh, begins to do his detective work, he uncovers that it's not just, it's not a bad apple among the kids. It's not that little Susie just wasn't raised right, but there is an evil force at work in the youth group. Evil forces such as, as you saw up there, Dr. Decepto, Madam Glitz, the Gossip Queen, the Slacker, and my personal favorite, the Fibbler. <laughs> which is basically Bible Man's version of the Joker. Um, over the course of the episode, Bible Man has a few run-ins with this evil force at work in the background of um, the youth group, eventually ending in, as the intro kind of gave you a sense of, uh, a lightsaber battle. Uh, the sword of the spirit, for whatever reason, manifested itself as a lightsaber, uh, which led to my brother and I on more than one occasion, uh, pretending our Bibles were lightsabers and kind of lightsaber fighting uh, each other. But by the end of the episode, Bible Man, while having this lightsaber fight where he quotes a lot of scripture while he's fighting, um, slays this evil foe, uh, frees the youth group from its issues, and then usually there's some musical number at the end where the kids go on stage and are like, yeah, like this. It really feels like... Uh, it really, it really feels like Christian kids bop at the end, right? And then uh, we pray, everyone's sanctified, we go home, right? Like that's, that's a Bible Man episode. Now, if you've 
you've seen it before, right? You maybe, like me, had your imagination captured by it at a young age, right? But there's this theory with media, and we're increasingly finding it to be true, that media doesn't just shape our reality, it also reflects what we perceive of our reality. So to put it another way, uh, I create a movie, and then if I do a good job, hopefully people will see that movie, right? I create it based on the way I see the world. People go see the movie, they see this, and especially kids at a young age, think then this is how the world is. They go, create their own stuff, go, right? And it becomes kind of this feedback loop where we're constantly reaffirming our own worldview, and then we wonder why everything's so polarized. <laughs> um, I, I, I say all that to say, even if you've never heard of Bible Man, uh, if you call yourself evangelical or have spent much time in an American church in the last 25 plus years, you have been shaped by a faith that created Bible man, whether this was your first time meeting him or your thousandth time meeting him. Uh, Bible man is the epitome of what I'm going to call today the imagination of the spiritual warrior. And for good or bad, I think there's at least one generation, probably more than one generation of Christians who, when we come across this passage here in Ephesians or other passages like it, our imagination is shaped by the spiritual warrior. That God has empowered believers, usually male believers, but believers um, in the imagination, not real life. But right, we imagine that God has empowered believers to put on this armor and go fight spiritual battles in the name of God. And while Jedi for Jesus, Jedis for Jesus would be a really awesome name for a junior high ministry, Erica, I, I think that could be a good curriculum for us to, to try out. I think you could grow a youth group pretty well with that. And there's a lot good in this imagination. I think there's a lot there that we miss if this is the core imagination through which we see this text. So today I want to ask five questions. And I think in answering those five questions, we'll see that Paul's imagination of what it means to put on the armor of God is maybe a little different than Bible man's. My first question is this. Why? What's the issue? What's the problem? Why is it that we need to put on the armor of God in the first place? Paul begins by saying, take God's power upon yourself. Well, why do we need that? This is not necessarily an easy question to answer for a lot of reasons. The number one being, Ephesians is kind of a weird letter. Most of our New Testament letters we have, especially those written by Paul, seem to have been written by, uh, for, for one specific reason. It's either addressed directly in the letter itself or through some context clues. It's pretty easy to kind of decipher what the issue the church is having that Paul is then responding to. Ephesians doesn't quite work that way for a lot of reasons, um, but it seems in general to be a more general letter. It's not answering one specific problems. In fact, some scholars believe it was meant to be kind of circulated uh, among several churches in an area. Um, our oldest copies of the letter don't even have the title to the Ephesians at the beginning. So 
how do we know why we need to take it up unless we know what issue Paul's writing about? Well, he answers it there a little bit. He says we need it because of the tricks of the devil. Okay, Paul, yeah, the devil's tricky. We get that. But what does that mean, right? It sounds like a good Sunday school answer, but like, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, if we look back, having looked back and spent this, these past two, three months in the book, I can't help but think that Paul's main concern here is, is unity, right? Paul is really worried that Christians are going to be tricked or misled and sent in the wrong direction. Now, I think this is different than the imagination of the spiritual warrior. The spiritual warrior is largely ready to fight threats from the outside. Ready to answer the tricks of the world with a quippy Bible verse and send those evildoers packing back on their way. Paul's concern seems to be a little different than that, though, here in Ephesians chapter 6. I reread, I tried to read the book in one sitting this week. I, I succeeded. It's not a very long book. If you have time and you find yourself wanting to spend some time in Scripture this week, I would, I would highly recommend reread through the whole book of Ephesians in one sitting. It won't take you very long, and I think you'll pick up on things that it, this kind of week-by-week week chunk, uh, chunk re- reading is, you might miss. But I was fascinated by the number of times Paul warns against being misled by tricky people. We don't have to go back very far. Um, Just chapter 5, verse 16, and we see this. Take advantage of every opportunity because these are evil times. Because of this, don't be ignorant, but understand the Lord's will. That seems to suggest that we need to find ways to understand the Lord's will and not some other will, right? Uh, Verse 10, I'm just kind of working backwards. Therefore, test everything to see what's pleasing to God. Well, if I need to test it, that may mean that it may not always be that obvious. Five, uh, chapter 5, verse 6. Nobody should deceive you with stupid ideas. God's anger comes down on those who are disobedient because of this kind of thing. Right? Paul seems to be worried we're going to be misled by, quote-unquote, stupid ideas. Sometimes the common English Bible is very common, right? Uh, But my personal favorite has to be from chapter 4, verse 14. He says this. uh, After thinking about us as unified in one body, he says this. As a result of being unified, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. First of all, that's just a brilliant metaphor, but kind of a confusing one. Is Paul out there throwing babies in a windstorm? Like, I don't, I don't understand. Is that like a common thing that would happen? I guess toddlers are very top-heavy, so if a strong gust of wind comes, just, right? But it makes a lot of sense, right? We are not meant to be people who are easily blown which way in the other. Pastor Grant, a couple weeks ago, did a great job thinking about how anger sometimes... People want to make you angry because when you're angry, it's really easy to trick you into doing things you might not otherwise have been doing. We need to be, uh, we need to know who we are 
We need to know the story we're a part of. I think that's why Paul opens with three chapters reminding us the story. Because if we don't remember, know the story and then work to make sure we're remembering the story, I don't think the issue for Paul is that outside forces are going to come in and lead people away from the faith, although that is an issue. There's no, nothing really talked about in Ephesians on what we should do if someone leaves the church. I think Paul's worry is that people are going to be led astray, but not realize it, think they're following Christ, and really they're following something else, think they know the story of Christianity, but really they're following a different story. Maybe that story, you know, it's nice when the story's like, you know, if this is the way we're supposed to go with Christ, when the story leads us this way, because pretty quickly it's obvious that we're going the wrong way. The problem is when Christ is here, but what we think we're doing is more like here, If I sent two people walking that way, for a little while, they'd be able to talk and chat and see each other. But after a mile, two miles, three miles, one of you's in Cuna, the other's in Meridian, right? Like this is, Paul's concern is not that that the devil is working to make unchristians. He's concerned that it's making a lot of, instead of the church, it's making a lot of churches that fight with each other when they should be unified. That only kind of reflect Christ when they should be putting on the full armor of God. And in this case, I think Bible man can fail to look introspectively. There's an assumption with the imagination of the spiritual warrior that that warrior has it all together. When often Paul wants us to check ourselves. Next question. So if this is why we need to do it, the devil's tricky. Well, who are, right? If we are an army, we're being armored. uh, That means there's a fight. So who are we fighting? Who's the enemy? And here I think, you know, Bible man does a pretty decent job. Uh, Bible man doesn't show up to church and start turning his lightsaber on the kids. He's not Anakin Skywalker, right? Like he, (laughs) oh, that'd be a dark episode, right? Like he, he doesn't show up and go, Susie, you've been fibbing. Right? Like, like beat, beat her up. No. He realizes there are forces at work that Susie is being led astray by. Now, there's limitations to this. I think it's great that we focus so much on uh, personal faith. Right? It's an important part. If there's not that personal component and you're just kind of following... Uh, where you think you should be going, that could lead bad places, right? Like, there's an inauthenticity there. But I think where, where the, the spiritual warrior, and sometimes this imagination we fail to realize, is that these evils, Paul calls rulers and authorities for a reason. These forces of evil, these spiritual forces, apply both individually, but also systemically. And I didn't watch every Bible Man episode preparing for this sermon. I did some other stuff. Uh, but I don't believe there is an episode of Bible Man versus systemic inequality. Bible Man versus poverty, right? Bible Man versus homelessness. Bible Man versus whatever. Now I know you've all gotten very quiet. I know talking about systemic sin gets uncomfortable. 
because as soon as we want to propose solutions to it, we're going to get into politics. But it should not be controversial for Christians to say that systemic sin exists. If humans are meant to be good but largely flawed beings, and they create the systems that run the world, it should then follow that those systems might reflect the flaws of their creators, who generation after generation might continue those flaws and actually make the flaws worse. And for Paul, those systems, the very systems that have, by the way, put him in jail, are more than the sum of their parts. And just as evil forces might be there trying to make your kid a fibber, they may also be leading to severe inequality and issues that the world faces. It's not faith versus social justice. It should be faith and social justice. The breastplate of righteousness is not just, right? Grant said it great, right? The breastplate of self-righteousness, right? Like, it is a righteousness that cares for right being done in all places. So what is our armor? I, you guys should have listened faster. I'm quickly running out of time, but what is our armor? That was a Scottism, yeah. All right. Um, beautiful. We need to, we put off our old life. We put off our old clothes back in chapter four. So now what are we putting back on? What is this armor? Truth, belt of truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, God's word. And that doesn't just mean the Bible, by the way. Remember, when Paul's writing this, the New Testament doesn't exist. He's writing the New Testament. It's that willingness to follow the Spirit, to trust that in the moment the Spirit will give us the words to say. And that is our one offensive weapon in an armor that is largely defensive. It is what allows us to stand firm. Notice that Paul's call to action is not to that now, go get them! It's to stand, to wait, not to be on the offensive. And I, I feel like I need to say this, and some of you are going to chuckle, but we know these are metaphorical weapons and armor, right? Like, we know it's a metaphor, right? Wonder Woman may have a lasso of truth, but there's no belt of truth delivered to your house after baptism. If there is, I missed it. The final week of catechism isn't spent in a forge crafting your very own breastplate of righteousness. As cool as it would be, membership class does not include a new pair of shoes for more easily spreading the gospel. Our recognition for years of faithful service, our certificate, and maybe if you're lucky, a little statue or plaque, there's no cool shield of faith. There's no punch card to redeem for a helmet of salvation after you've had your 100th conversion to the faith. And I got ordained this past spring, and so I can say from personal experience and a little bit of disappointment that it did not come with a sword of the Spirit. <laughs> See, if history shows us anything, it's that Christians are really willing to take up armor. We're really good at making war. 
crusades, inquisitions, witch trials, holy wars, culture wars, wars on Christmas, right? For a religion following a Messiah who chose crucifixion over raising the sword, we are very good at making war in his name. What armor are we picking up? What is in our arsenal? Because it's really hard to believe, as much as I love Bible man, I think he's a good example fighting spiritual. And if, you know, if you're, especially, where are my junior hires? Do I have junior hires over here? Yeah. If it's helpful for you to imagine your prayers as like fighting demons or something, cool. I'm glad that you're praying. I'm glad that helps you. But it's really hard to believe that self-sacrificial love conquers all when our imagination is shaped by righteous violence as the necessary solution to the problem of sin. So how do we use this armor? Paul's answer is pretty simple. Once we put it on, what do we do? Pray. Prayer. It's really beautiful. I find it so fascinating that Paul asks, begs, basically, the Ephesians to pray for him. This one who has led them, who is their general in this metaphor, who has already prayed for them in the book so powerfully, who spent most of the book telling them what they're doing wrong, right? Like, he doesn't say, once you figure it out, would you mind praying for me? But even now, pray for me. Pray for him. The spiritual warrior fights alone. But the church, equipped with the army, armor of God that Paul imagines, fights together. Uh, wars weren't fought one-on-one in the ancient world. In fact, the words Paul used to describe the armor very much trying to imagine a Roman soldier. And if you know anything about Rome, they didn't fight mano a mano. They're actually really known for their battalions with big shields, right, that mostly protect you. But if you have a friend standing next to you, it protects you even better. This is why I think Paul's so worried about people running off in different directions. We're supposed to be standing firm together. If the person next to you wanders off, guess what? Arrow poop. This is not an instruction guide for one-on-one spiritual warfare. It's a manual for walking this journey of faith together. And where does this lead? So we know the issue. We know our enemy. We know what our weapons are. We know how to use them. What's the end goal? Christ-likeness. What we might here call sanctification. But also maybe jail? Paul ends reminding us that he is a quote-unquote ambassador in chains for this gospel, which is such an oxymoron. Ambassadors need to be able to go wherever they want, right? But he's in jail. And the prayer he asks them to pray for him is not, Lord, get me out of jail. We're not picking up arms to go free Paul from prison. He says, pray for me that even here, I might have the words to say to be true to Christ's gospel. Partnering with God in the, advan- in the advancement of the new creation does not necessarily mean furthering our own personal agenda, shoring up our security, or building up personal status. 
In fact, it's often quite the opposite. Just as we cannot put on God's armor without first taking off whatever clothed us before, we must be willing to let go of the old creation, even those parts that have turned out really well for us, in order to fully embrace the new creation. That's it. That's all there is to it. We're called to be one people, working together, empowered by the Spirit, as people of truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. To stand firm in the hope of the new creation, even when the old creation doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. This calling isn't going to change. It's not, these are our weapons for now, but then eventually we're going to pick the sword back up. In Genesis 1, the first page of the Bible, it is God's word that puts chaos away and makes space for creation. If you have time this week, go check out Revelation chapter 19. It's right there at the end of the Bible. It's the Battle of Armageddon. I went through it this last year with students, and I don't know if it was the books I read growing up or the way people talked, but I was expecting nukes and tanks, gunfights. There's a battle. There's an army. They're not clothed in armor. They're clothed in white. There's a general. He sits on a horse. He's also clothed in white, and he is, (laughs) Jesus, right, is covered in blood. But what's weird is the battle hasn't started yet, which asks us, whose blood is it? There's only one weapon in the battle, at least as described. The sword that extends from the mouth of Christ. That is the only weapon in the final battle between good and evil that slays evil and puts us into the new creation fully. This isn't going to change, y'all. What armor are we putting on? Is it the armor of aggression? Is it the armor of this age? Is it the armor of Idaho? Y'all can be really defensive. As a Californian, I've learned this. (laughs) Or are we equipping ourselves with truth? Righteousness? Salvation? Faith? the Word of God. Those are the only weapons you need, y'all. Anything else? Those are for fighting flesh and blood, but guess what? We have no more enemies of flesh and blood. We're not, we, we have not been conscripted into an army to defend God's holiness by any means necessary. We've been called to a life of humble, self-giving love that transforms us even as it changes the world. For the word of the creator calls the creation back to be what it was always intended to be and to be made new. So stand firm. Take up the armor. Watch out for your neighbor. Await the coming king's return. He has called us. He is faithful He will finish his work in us. Let's pray. Lord God, the equipper of our faith, we humbly come before you today and confess the ways 
that we desire to be Bible man more than we desire to look like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, today we pray with the Apostle Paul from Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, this is why we kneel before the Father, that every ethnic group in heaven or on earth is recognized by him. And we ask that he will strengthen us in our inner selves from the riches of his glory through the Spirit. We ask that Christ will live in our hearts through faith. As a result of having strong roots in love, we ask that uh, we'll have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth, together with all believers. We ask that you will reveal to us the love of Christ that is beyond all knowledge, so that we may be filled entirely with the fullness of God. Amen.